Welcome to A Higher Branch, a source of practical and powerful information for busy people dedicated to boosting their personal health and professional performance. I'm your host, Sam McCall. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of A Higher Branch. Now today I've invited back Dr. Jason Kaplan, specialist cardiologist, who two weeks ago recorded a podcast with me on the importance of diet for heart health. And the reason why I invited Jason to the program was because of the latest research on how people are dying from the coronavirus, not from respiratory problems, but from heart problems. So I think it is absolutely the perfect timing to talk about our heart health. So in the last episode, we approached it from a diet perspective, but this week we are talking about the role of exercise. So if you have not listened to that previous podcast, I urge you to do so because you really need to get the balance for both diet and exercise right when it comes to your health. But for those of you who don't know who Dr. Jason Kaplan is, he's a specialist cardiologist who is a member of the Royal Australasian College of Physicians, the Cardiac Society of Australia and New Zealand. He studied at the University of New South Wales and graduated with honours in 1999, which is an incredible feat when it comes to medicine. And he completed his training at St. George Hospital, Prince of Wales and Royal Prince Alfred Hospital. And over the past five years, he has lectured extensively throughout the world. More recently, he's become a visiting medical officer at the Macquarie University Teaching Hospital and St. Vincent Private Clinic. And he has uh, also completed incredible training in medical oncology, pharmacology, uh, cardiac imaging. And he also spent time at the Mayo Clinic in the US where he learned imaging techniques that he brought back to Macquarie University. Now you're gonna learn a lot from uh, Dr. Jason Kaplan today because he also has a strong interest in sports cardiology. So whether you are an emerging athlete or an existing athlete, or even a person who is not that athletic, today's podcast is a must listen. And on that note, Dr. Jason Kaplan, welcome back to the High Branch community. Thank you very much for having me back, Sam. Excellent. So it's been a few weeks since you've last been on our program and last time we talked about diet, but you also have a very strong interest in sports cardiology, which is an emerging subspecialty uh, providing cardiac care to elite Olympic athletes. So you've worked with the Institute of Sport and more recently you've consulted the National Rugby League. Now, obviously, these elite athletes are at a different level to most of the people listening today. But what I wanted to download today was just your insight and research into how exercise, obviously how it impacts our heart, but uh, also if we can comment on how it impacts all-cause mortality as well. You know, a lot of people are obsessed with, uh, you know, food as medicine, but you also talk about exercise as medicine. So uh, firstly, what are the just the general health benefits of exercise and physical activity? Sam, if, if exercise... The, the beneficial effects of exercise could be bottled up and put into a drug or a supplement that people could buy. It would be by far one of the most effective drugs that would have ever would be ever, ever to come out in the world because its a, its effect is myriad on the, the body and especially the, the cardiovascular system. You know, in, in terms of the heart, we do know that people who are overall fitter and have a high level of aerobic fitness tend to live longer and we'll, we'll go a little bit more into detail of that. But exercise improves cardiovascular hemodynamics. It helps the heart remodel. It also is anti-atherosclerotic. And we touched about atherosclerosis last time, which is the, the buildup of plaque in the arteries. So exercise is one of the most potent activities that raise good cholesterol. So it raises HDL, and also some people can lower LDL, which is bad cholesterol. And as, a, as an aside, you know, pharmaceutical companies for years and years have been trying to make a come up with a drug that can raise HDL, which is protective, and none of them have been able to do it. Every time that they've tried, they've, that they've failed. It also lowers a part of our blood called triglycerides, which has been associated with uh, with sort of cholesterol deposition. It's very potent at reducing blood pressure. And so for all my patients that have high blood pressure, I highly recommend they start doing some regular aerobic exercise. And we, we touched last on the last podcast about inflammation and exercise 
is a very potent anti anti-inflammatory mechanism in our body by multiple by, by by multiple you know small chemicals. It reduces hsCRP and something called interleukin as well. Exercise has an effect at being anti-arrhythmic. So what happens when we exercise is we increase our heart rate variability. Now that's actually a good thing. It also reduces activation of our sympathetic of us over the long term. It reduces activation, even though we use our sympathetic nervous system when we exercise. It reduces it overall reduces the the upregulation of of that that activity, and then improves uh, our vagal tone. So, you know, people who exercise tend to have slower heart rates, which which is a good thing. And then I think one of the, the other major benefits, and uh, you know, is psychologic as well. It's, it reduces stress. It clearly reduces depression and anxiety. And I I always think it's far more far better exercise is a far better tool to treat depression and anxiety or very useful as an adjunct compared to a lot of medications which is sometimes hit and miss and although we can't do it at the moment it can you know increase the amount of social interaction so it's in this current era where we're in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic I we all see seeing outside a lot more people are exercising outside and I think it's, it's great to see What's really the fascinating thing about what we're seeing and what, what, what's happening, we don't know why, is that there are over 50% less heart attacks happening, coming into hospitals around the world. This is an absolutely remarkable figure, and we're going to have to do more research into why that is happening, whether people are either cooking more for themselves or eating better or, or exercising more. But there's something that that's got. I mean, some of it may be because people are not going to hospital because of the symptoms. But it's a fascinating phenomenon that we're seeing that there the amount of acute heart attacks presenting to hospitals around the world are halved at the moment. That's a phenomenal statistic. That's that's crazy. So what's going on here? What is what is your hypothesis on it? I think perhaps people are uh, starting to take care, better care. My hope is they're starting to take better care of their health. They have more time to perhaps think about how they'd like to take better care of their health. I mean, it is a very short time and short time period that people have had the opportunity to do it. Um, and But perhaps if this trend continues, we may start to see a greater emphasis on lifestyle treatment of, of heart disease. I think we're going to have to study it more. Yeah, because there is a lack of, um, amongst your peers, uh, lifestyle isn't really something that they talk about. So you're one of very few people internationally who talk about uh, lifestyle, preventative measures, exercise, and you give it a great weight. And the research really supports you. So, you know, popping a pill uh, is one thing, but it has to be done in conjunction with a great diet, exercise, uh, lowering stress levels. But it's interesting that exercise ticks all the boxes that the pills do, diets do, you know, um, psychological health as well. You know, with when it comes to psychological health, a lot of people, there are two avenues, you know, the long term is to obviously fix the underlying psychological issue. But exercise is a very quick fix. It's sort of like a short term uh, return to baseline, because after you do exercise, all your body chemistry changes, you step back into your parasympathetic system. And I mean, the feelings you get after exercise, I'm speaking from, <laughs> from experience here, because I could spend hours in the office and then at lunchtime, I'll go do an F45 workout. And it's honestly, it's like someone's, you know, giving me this pill, which is taking me to, you know, Nirvana. <laughs> it feels so good. It does because there's an amazing release of in the acute, there's an acute release of endorphins, um, which, which provides that, that sort of immediate, you know, feeling of, uh, feeling of well-being. But then over time, it starts to change our brain's neurotransmitters and causes more release of the, I guess, the neurotransmitters that cause us to feel good in in the long term. I guess what what's really interesting, Sam, is I mean, we work in usually in fairly high-paced areas in, in Sydney, and in and for people listening, is that there are a lot of people who will do, I guess, too much exercise as well, and they will go out there and you know really, I guess, stress their bodies a lot. And some of these people are already fairly stressed because of their work and, and other circumstances. And one of the, the pieces of exercise advice that I always sort of give people is to, you know, be able to mix up their exercise a, a little bit. So we, in terms of, of Chinese medicine, there's the yin, the yin and the yang. The yang is the very active where you get your heart pumping 
physical exercise and the yin is the slower exercise such as a nice walk out, out in nature or some or yoga or qigong or, or tai chi and i always feel it's beneficial for people to have a mix of both of to have a mix of both of those exercise or exercise types if people are too heavily towards towards one it, it can sometimes have adverse health con, health consequences if people doing too much of the more sedentary they're not focusing enough on their cardiovascular fitness which is one of the most important prognostic and features that and I will I will we'll touch on that later but people do too much of where they really pushing themselves they may become especially adrenally fatigued and overall that may, that may also be detrimental to their long-term health I'm glad I'm glad you raised that because a couple of years ago I did some research into it because I was exercising twice a day burning like 15 calories really intense high high intensity sessions at f45 and i i started experiencing some health issues like i my energy dipped i had trouble sleeping i couldn't digest my food and i researched it wrote an article about it and and i got slammed by people <laughs> saying how can you criticize exercise and and but there is research out there that shows there's a difference between you know physical activity, exercise, and fitness. Are you exercising for health or are you exercising for fitness? And um, uh, I, to my surprise, there was a lot of people who are long distance runners and athletes who are having heart attacks in their sixties. So, is there a correlation between too much exercise and uh, poor heart health as you get older? So that is that's fascinating. The overarching message, Sam, is that higher levels of physical fitness and especially aerobic fit, fitness is beneficial from a cardiovascular point of view. And one of the most important things that I tell patients is your, and we test it here in the rooms every day, is your level of aerobic fitness, the fitter you are for, for your age, is predictive of how long you, you are going to live. So that is one, one of the, the key principles. But it absolutely is true that you can overdo it. And more and more, we know that if exercise is in a way a drug and has all these physiological, physiological effects on, on the body, as we're starting to learn about, can you do too much? And for some people, yes, yes, you can. We do know that the, the cardiovascular effects of exercise start to attenuate when you really start to do, I guess, more than we think around more than 20 yeah, more than 20 hours a week where people can you actually start to lose the cardiovascular benefit of exercise but what we are starting to see is that the people that do extreme sports so people that are do triathlons and marathons and really start to push themselves and do that over many years we're starting as we're starting to test people we're starting to see some adverse effects some of the effects that we see and when we use my area, one of my areas of interest in cardiology is cardiac imaging. So it's using advanced radiological techniques to, to look at the heart and of ultrasound as well. So we start to see scarring in the heart. So we see scarring in the heart in long-term endurance athletes and tri triathletes. And this can sometimes be a focus for arrhythmias. Interestingly, we also see in long-term endurance athletes the development of early coronary calcification lining the walls of the arteries. And calcification is a surrogate marker for, for plaque or atherosclerosis. Now, that, that does not necessarily mean that these people are at the same risk of a heart attack as some of my, my usual cohort of patients, that people are more unhealthy with traditional cardiovascular risk factors, such as diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, smoking but it, it is a trend that it's that, that people these people may need to take take a little bit more care and there's also one of the most common conditions that i see in middle-aged athletes is a condition called atrial fibrillation this is a condition where the top chamber of our hearts the atria does not beat in conjunction with the bottom chamber of the heart without ventricle and it can cause causes people exercise intolerance and more dangerously actually can increase the risk of, of a stroke and the development of atrial fibrillation in athletic people uh, athletic people is often directly correlated to the amount of endurance sport they are doing and when people start to hit greater than 
3,000 hours of endurance sport during the lifetime. And that's, for an endurance athlete, that's actually not a lot. They double their chance of developing atrial fibrillation. And Sam, these are fairly fit, well active, active middle-aged men who have this fairly significant heart condition. And often my advice to them is you have to change the way that you exercise. These are people who are doing a lot of aerobic and endurance work. And for certain genetic reasons, or they, they are predisposed to, to getting this condition. So I, the message is if you are doing a lot of exercise and you are, if, if that's your exercise pattern, it's worth being, you know, checked out just to get a good baseline of what your heart is doing. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about the difference between heart fit and, and fit, but just on that, uh, the different heart conditions. A lot of people think that heart disease is just one thing, but people die from different heart diseases, isn't there? There's like heart failure, there's arteriosclerosis. Uh, what are the different conditions starting from the, you know, the, the most prevalent that the one that kills you the most down to the least because like you said for people who are athletes who develop these uh, afib as you guys call it atrial fibrillation they're dying or they're exposing themselves to a different risk so what what are the different heart conditions that we can get so the most common the most common heart condition we see in western society and in australia is coronary artery disease so that is disease of the of the coronary arteries, which are the major blood supply to the, to the heart muscle. And that the usual coronary artery disease is the gradual buildup of plaque, often related to either genetics, cholesterol, smoking, blood pressure, diabetes. And either that causes blockages or plaques become unstable and, and rupture. And when a plaque becomes unstable and ruptures, and blood clots form in that, that's a heart attack. And what's really interesting is that a quarter of all men who present with heart attacks had no symptoms before. And we often hear the stories about people who are fit and well and exercising, and then they suddenly develop chest pain and had their first heart attack. And that's because that blockage was, there was no blockage. The plaque was unstable. Perhaps there was inflammation and so that's one of the most common presentations of, of that we see is, is heart attacks, and that relates to coronary arteries. But you're right, there are other problems. The other most common presentation of heart disease we see in Australia is something called heart failure. And heart failure is where you get a weakening, either a weakening of the heart muscle, so the heart muscle doesn't contract as well, and people start to get a buildup of blood in their lungs, and that makes them fairly fairly short of breath. And as the heart becomes weaker, the heart is more susceptible to fatal arrhythmias, or an arrhythmia is an abnormal heart rhythm. And that's, in actual fact, that's how most people with, with heart, heart failure run into, into problems. Now, there are some people who may not know that there is a, that they have a weak heart and they go and exercise and, and they, they, they can run, run into problems. So a weak heart muscle is, is a common and not all people have a weak heart muscle. There are many different causes of heart failure. Some are genetic, some can relate to, some can relate to viruses, some can relate to inflammation, inflammation of the heart. The third one of the most common things that people run into problems with heart disease is a problem called arrhythmias. And we touched on one of the most common arrhythmias is atrial fibrillation. But that's more of a, that doesn't actually kill people. The, the arrhythmia that kills people with exercise is something called ventricular, ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation. And those are facial arrhythmias that can occur in a predisposed heart. And sadly, they're the sort of arrhythmias when you hear about young people dying during sports or a few years ago there was sadly a man who died at the end of the city to surf and some some listeners may remember it but he in actual fact had an underlying genetic heart disease that predisposed him to getting fatal fatal arrhythmias and that's why i became very interested in, in part of what i do in sports cardiology is that we screen elite elite athletes for these underlying genetic heart diseases and we try and pick up who may be at risk when people really put their hearts under stress during professional sports. And it's, although it's very difficult for us to always predict that, we, we do our best. But one of the, I guess, one of the, the most, the worst things would be if one of our professional athletes had a sudden cardiac arrest when, when playing professional sport. Wow. That's, 
that's kind of scary, really. So if someone's starting out with um, uh, exercise or sport, how do they know whether they have, you know, a weak heart muscle or AFib? So is that something that um, they can get tested with cardiologists such as yourself? Yes, it's, it's, it's you know, it's fairly easy for, for us to test that. And I would usually recommend that anyone who has been sedentary and is over the age of 40 that is thinking about getting back into a regular exercise program or especially if they have a have a family history of heart disease or genetic heart diseases to come and come and get checked out before they they really start to push themselves in the majority of cases they're all going to be fine but sometimes we we do pick 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 things up and what's really interesting is when you start to and every year there's you know some of the most world's most famous marathons such as the london marathon the boston marathon the New York Marathon. Sometimes some people have a cardiac event and sadly some, some people die. And over many years, they have analyzed the cause of death in, in these people who've, who've had a death during marathon running. And for the majority of, for the majority of people over the age of 35, the most common cause is undiagnosed coronary artery disease. And this is for people who have narrowings or blockages in their coronary arteries that had no idea they had it because it wasn't causing them symptoms. Then in a, in a way, endurance sport like a, like a marathon is the perfect storm for the development of a heart attack because people are stressing themselves. They have more adrenaline and noradrenaline. They often, people may not drink enough, so their blood becomes a little bit thicker and more likely to clot. And also there's, uh, relate electrolyte abnormalities, people sweat when they're exercising a lot. So all those things come together are the perfect storm for, uh, for a cardiac event to happen. And often people are in a marathon and they may not have, not, may not have done it before, may not be, have done a lot of it. So they push themselves harder than they, they, norm, they normally would. So if you are thinking about doing, starting endurance sports, and I think we're seeing a lot more of it now that people are interested in doing lots of cycling and running and doing tri doing triathlons. I, I had an amazing man in my office a few weeks ago. At age 63, he did his first Ironman triathlon, which was, I was just inspired inspired by him how he started to, to train for it and, and, and when he did it. But he came and got himself checked out before he was about to go do it. And I think that was very sensible because you don't want to be putting yourself at risk doing these these more extreme endurance sports. So tell us what that checkout looks like, you know, when you go in to get checked out. It's not invasive because I've had it done. So what, what does it look like for someone that's listening now? What is it? So usually it come up, come into the rooms and one of the key things in medicine is always to do a good history and an examination and take very careful, a careful family history for any possible cause, any possible diseases that may put people at risk. But it's, Sam, you're right, it's all non-invasive. So usually we will do a test called an ECG where we look at the heart's electrical activity and we, we analyze certain aspects of that ECG. We then do a cardiac ultrasound, which is a technique that allows us to see the heart in real time so we can see the heart function. We can look at the valves. We can measure the pressures. We have a lot of information about the heart. And then the last part of it is to, to do people to do a stress test where we then do our best to stress you by ramping, going on a treadmill or a bike and gradually increasing the amount of workload to try and put the heart under a certain amount of stress. That tells us two, three things actually, Sam. It tells us firstly, is someone safe to exercise from a hemodynamic point of view, their blood pressure and heart rate and arrhythmias. It also tells us are there any, is there a suggestion of any narrowings to the blood supply to the heart, any disease in the coronary arteries. And the third thing it tells me about is someone's underlying baseline level of fitness and one of the key things i always bring up with with my patients and there's a on, in my slide deck there's a wonderful slide that that was published in the journal of the american medical association last uh, last year about physical fitness in american adults and overall mortality not just heart mortality but cardiovascular mortality and if you are in the top quintile or quartile so if you're in the top levels of fitness for your age and sex, as measured by the simple test that we do on the treadmill, your cardiovascular event rate over the next 10 years was almost at zero. It wasn't negligible, 
but it was very low. And also your event rate from any major diseases such as cancer, diabetes, stroke was also very low. However, if you were in the bottom 20% of fitness for for your age group and your sex, over one in five of those people at 10 years will not be around anymore. They will have died from something, most likely heart disease. So physical fitness is one of the strongest predictors of dying from 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 any disease over the age of 50. And when if people have limited time or where they want to put their, put their energy into in terms of protecting, we, we talked a lot about diet last time, but aerobic fitness is one of the things that I really encourage encourage people to, to work on long term. So let's talk about then the different exercises because there's aerobics, there's resistance training, and there's uh, what, flexibility uh, training. And so you're putting a huge emphasis on aerobic exercise as opposed to, say, lifting weights. That, that's right. For, this is in, cardio, in, cardiovascular, in cardiovascular outcomes. I think that a lot of people say, you know, what's the best sort of exercise for, for my heart? Uh, and it's clear that, you know, exercise that causes, you know, that improves our aerobic, our aerobic capacity is hugely beneficial in heart disease. Now, weights can be, weights are beneficial for a lot of people in terms of balance and, and strength and often can be helpful in hormonal, hormonal balance as well. And, Things like yoga for, for, for flexibility and advise people to try and incorporate a whole combination of all of these. But there are many different ways to get that aerobic activity. It's very popular at the moment is high, is, is high intensity exercise. We do know that high intensity exercise over long periods of time can lead to improved levels of physical fitness. So that was work done by at the, at the University of, of New South Wales. And it's also, in some studies, it's also been shown to be associated with higher levels of fitness and how people do that high-intensity exercise, such as classes like, like F4, F45 or group training, where they do use weights as well as they're, they're pumping their heart and their heart is moving. There's not the heart, interestingly, the heart adapts in different ways to the type of exercise that you're doing. And for the most part, it's, it's beneficial. So when I see endurance athletes, when I look at their hearts with cardiac ultrasound, their, their hearts adapt in a certain way. Their, their hearts become, their, their, their heart cavity dilates, it gets bigger, and their heart becomes more efficient. And that's a little bit different to people, to athletes that are strength training athletes, some of the rugby league players that, that we look after, people that are, that are weightlifters. Their hearts become a, a little bit thicker. So the heart does adapt to different forms of different form different forms of exercise. What's really interesting, and there was a great piece of research to come out last year, Sam, is is that aerobic endurance training and intense interval training, besides having an amazing cardiovascular benefit, it induces telomerase activities and increases telomere length. So the telomeres are the part in, in our cells, they're at the end of the chromosomes. And this was a lot of this work, a lot of this work was done by Elizabeth Blackburn, who's a Nobel Prize winner from, from originally from Tasmania, now at UCS, UCSF in San Francisco. And they've been able to show that that aerobic exercise and intense interval training, as opposed to resistance training, had an effect at increasing telomere length and telomerase activity that leads to cellular longevity and longer life, which is a, a pretty amazing effect of of, of exercise and partly responsible for why people that, that exercise life, the people lifelong exercises live longer. I wonder if there's any research. That's, that's quite remarkable. And I, I have heard of her work, but I wonder, I'm just thinking the difference between, say, using exercise to maintain telomere length versus supplements like, uh, what's that supplement that David Sink, Professor David Sinclair talks about all the time? Um, NAD. I think one of them is NAD and resveratrol is another one that, that gets mentioned. Yeah, resveratrol. That's, that's the one I just had a mental blank then. So resveratrol is often found in red, red wine, but to be honest, you'd have to drink a lot of red wine to get the, the amounts of resveratrol that may be implicated in, in reducing cellular aging. But what about, uh, uh, resveratrol supplements that have been touted by David Sinclair? I think that's interesting. I, I don't know 
experiment that I'm reading his book called Lifespan at the moment. And I'm really, really enjoying it. Um, what's, what's interesting is we, we talked last time about the, uh, the, the blue zones and some of the, uh, wine that, that gets drunk by some of the people, especially in Europe. The wine there, they've analyzed it and has a higher level of polyphenols and resveratrol, which may be part of the reason why these people tend to tend to live longer. Um, I think it's interesting work. Maybe it's a discussion for another podcast. Yes, yes. But uh, I guess the point I'm making is that exercise, uh, can it give you the same benefit? I think it probably gives you greater, it gives you greater benefit. Um, it, it's probably, I think it gives you greater benefit in terms of, my opinion is it gives you greater benefit in terms of longevity than, you know, resveratrol than taking a single supplement. I always, you know, you cannot, I always tell one of the key messages, you cannot try and out supplement, out supplement to take vitamins to make up for poor lifestyle choices. And exercise as a habit is one of the most important lifestyle choices that, that, that we can make for ourselves. And one of the key messages I'd like to get out to people it does not have to be all this, this vigorous activity, the vigorous activity the whole time. If you're doing plenty of walking and for the most part, if you're getting greater than 10,000 steps a day and that 10,000 steps is, is a little bit arbitrary. It was, it was touted by, by interestingly, it became very popular through the, some of the talks of Martin Seligman, but we think it may be as low as 8,000 steps that may be beneficial and didn't necessarily matter about how brisk you did them as whether you did them, uh, did them at all. That may be enough to do that five or six days a week, a moderate level of exercise, maybe just as had the same cardiovas cardiovascular benefits and longevity benefits as someone doing a one and a half hours a week of vigorous intensity exercise. So for all those people that think, well, I'm, I'm not going out there and running like, like, like crazy or really pumping my heart, you can still get the benefits of the, the, the cardiac benefits of, of, of exercise by, by just by doing more of, of the, the less vigorous activity, things like brisk walking or bicycling or even doubles tennis or even gardening can provide you know, cardio, cardiovascular benefits as well. So last week we discussed the uh, Chimani tribe, which has low intensity, six hours of movement throughout the day. And they have, uh, the 80-year-olds have the hearts of 50-year-olds, so the uh, equivalent in the Western world. Does that, does that tell us then, if you are a, let's say, a landscaper or electrician or someone that's moving around all day in your job, does movement throughout the day, is that better for your uh, heart health than, uh, say, a, a lawyer or a doctor such as yourself, where we're sitting all day and then we hit the gym for one hour? What's best, movement throughout or just that one session at the end of the day? That's a good question, Sam, and I don't know the answer, the exact answer to that. What I can tell you is that we're starting to learn that that sitting may be the new smoking and having a very sedentary lifestyle. There's been studies that have shown this can up the risk of coronary artery calcification. And each added hour spent sitting during the day was in a very large epidemiological study called the Dallas Heart Study was associated with a 14% increase in coronary artery calcium. So that is a 14% increase in plaque in the arteries, and that is independent of every other cardiovascular risk factor. So, the the health con in a way the health consequences of sitting too much and having too much of a sedentary lifestyle are are also slightly separate to those who are doing too little exercise. And we need to, I think, do our best to avoid sit avoid sitting. A lot of I unfortunately when I consult patients spend a lot of the time sitting and at my at my academic and university desk I have a standing standing desk we're not quite at the point yet where I can ask patients to do a standing consultation though perhaps one day one day that that maybe we, we may be able to you know do that and one of the best things that I I saw when I, I spent some time at the Mayo Clinic um, in Rochester Minnesota was in the, the cardiology department in the imaging department they they had treadmill desks so while they were doing their work and their cardiac imaging work, they were 
they had some gentle walking on a treadmill throughout the day. And I thought that was just unbelievable. Um, so I think sitting too much is a real cardiovascular risk factor. And we should be making a conscious effort to be getting up out of our desks after half an hour or at least half an hour of sitting and moving around and trying to do as much uh, and try to, you know, break, break up that day. That's a really good point. The other, I think the other good point as well is that with sitting, there are a myriad of other problems that come with it as well, not just for heart health, but uh, I have a gentleman coming on the uh, podcast soon who's a lecturer in uh, the sports Cairo and just general movement and a lot of chronic pain conditions that develop uh, in the lower back, in the hips, in the knees, in the neck come as a result of a prolonged sitting. And I noticed in uh, that you also talk about postural exercise uh, as a modality on the physical activity spectra. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, yeah, so we, we do know, Sam, that, that exercise that helps us by strengthening our large muscle groups, especially around around the, the hip girdle um, and our of our legs, our quadriceps, our, our hamstrings, and allow and also the, I guess our abdominal muscles as well that improve our, our overall posture. And as we get older, these become much more important about our ability to, in a way, stay upright and walk more and avoid avoid falls. And as well, uh, my personal you know belief is that being that we should choose an exercise program that allows us to to exercise for a long time into our lives. Not to I see too many people that have exercised in a really hard and vigorous fashion in their in their that maybe their twenties, their thirties and their forties. A lot of them have ended up with bad osteoarthritis needed hip and knee hip and knee replacements or then can't can't do the exercise where it becomes really important in their fifties and fifties and sixties. So I think exercises such as, you know, some some resistance training some some light weights, yoga and Pilates to help maintain flexibility and core strength is a very important part of our exercise program as as we as we get get older. One of the other really I think really important things I would like to stress to people is that as we as we get older, that the heart is an, an amazing organ. Our body is an amazing an amazing organism, but that the heart especially and for people that are worried, well, what if I come to exercise too late in life? Will I still get the cardiovascular benefits? The the most amazing thing is is that our heart can still show adam, adaptations and change in shape and and remodel like like an athlete's heart well into our 60s and into our, our mid 60s. So they did this exercise um, at the uh, in this is done in the United States by a colleague. Uh, uh, Professor Benjamin Levine, and they 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 did this amazing experiment where they got people to be sedentary for six weeks, like did nothing, l- lie in bed, and did an exercise. And they looked at their hearts after six weeks of sedentary activity. And then after the sedentary activity, they got them to exercise in a in a fairly you know organized exercise program, and they showed that these hearts can re- remodel and start to look like athletic hearts. And so for, for people that think that they can't get the benefits, our heart can actually change the way it, it, its shape. It can start to pump out more blood as we get older. So that's up into our, so our mid to late 60s, this is still possible. So it's still definitely possible to get the beneficial effects of exercise well into that, that age group. And we should you know, still be encouraging, even if you haven't had a regular exercise program, it's not too late to start that's a really good point. And I, I love that. We, we spoke about that offline before we recorded this podcast. And it gives people a lot of hope, especially, you know, the, uh, the young baby boomers who, you know, maybe did a lot of sitting uh, for 40 years. They're in their 60s now and they're sort of retirement and they're thinking, is it too late? A lot of them thinking, is it too late for me to exercise? Has the damage been done? But uh, you're saying a lot of the research shows that you can actually reverse a lot of the... Um, arterial plaque so you can you can reverse some of the plaque you can actually so one of the, the most common causes of i talked about heart failure earlier one of the most common causes of heart failure we see in australia is where it's actually not a failure of the pumping but it's the inability of the heart to relax properly properly 
And the most common cause of that is long-standing high blood pressure and, and diabetes. And physical exercise reverses that process. So it reduces the stiffness of the heart. And importantly, it reduces the stiffness of the blood vessels. One of the tests that I routinely do for my patients is this is and this was research done at St. Vincent's by Professor Michael O'Rourke as he looked at arterial stiffness as a risk factor for both the development of high blood pressure and also for the future risk of stroke. And it was shown that regular aerobic exercise had a reduction in, in arterial stiffness and we were able to mention we we're able to measure that measure that in, in the clinic as well. Now, before I forget as well, I, there's a lot of people listening to this thinking, uh, especially if you're based in Sydney, how do I get to see uh, Dr. Kaplan? So um, just before I forget, before we wrap up this podcast, can you tell us where people can find you and how do they get to see you? I know you're pretty busy, but um, do they need a, a doctor's referral? Ideally, ideally, people should have a, have a doctor's referral from their, from their general practitioner um, and often people commonly come to have a preventative cardiology consultation or in the context of embarking upon a new uh, new program of sports. I work at a practice called New South Wales Cardiology, which is which is based in the Sydney CBD and at St. Vincent's Clinic. We have a website, New South Wales Cardiology. I also have a website, drjasonkaplan.com, that has a lot of some of the slide decks that we've talked about on there and some information for patients, and that's got all the contact details. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Jason. And um, so what else can you tell us then about the dose of exercise and the types of exercise? I know we talked about it uh, earlier, but is there anything else that you want to tell us about the actual dose? Because it, this seems to be just such a gray area, like how much is, is enough? You mentioned 20 hours, more than 20 hours per week is too much. Uh, and some people say five hours a week is enough. So what should we be aiming for? And also, does it matter what time of day we should be exercising? Uh, great question, Sam. So in actual fact, people do get a significant, even from as little as an hour and a half a week of vigorous physical activity provides significant cardiovascular, significant cardiovascular benefits in it. Vigorous physical activity, maybe something like cycling, greater than greater than eight kilometers an hour, running or jogging, singles tennis, uh, you know, a high intensity fitness class, um, fairly vigorous walking, or especially 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 in hills. If you do that sort of work for around around an hour and a half a week, you can still get a significant benefit from that in terms of in terms of exercise. But after a certain amount of, of time, that benefit, you still get a benefit, but you don't get as much benefit by doing the, the next lot of intense physical exercise. And that benefit after, after around five hours of in, in fairly intense physical exercise, and we look at intense physical, we can measure intense physical exercise in terms of, we use a common unit called metabolic equivalent, it's called the MET. And after, when you start to get above 10, 10 mets, and that's in intense physical, more intense physical exercise, you can you, the the absolute benefit of exercise starts to starts to wear off um, in terms of its absolute cardiovascular benefits, but it still may have beneficial effects in terms of in terms of of of, of fitness um, for people that are doing less less intense activities. We generally recommend probably more than double double that amount of exercise. So at least over 150 minutes a week, so 150 minutes a week of more moderate intensity. We, we, mentioned, some of, we mentioned some of those before. When you get over 150 weeks of moderate, you start to also get a significant cardiovascular benefit. And even people who do sort of brisk walking, and that's usually great, brisk walking can still get an over 30% reduction in cardiovascular events over the long term by doing a, doing moderate intensity doing moderate intensity exercise. So does your heart rate needs to get to a particular level? Um, yes, that's true. So often, and look, there are multiple formulas for for heart rates, and there are some that are more some of them more sophisticated than others. A, a simple guide to what people's maximum heart rate is. So this is where they they, they should be looking to 
not to exercise above is 220 minus 220 minus their age. And then in terms of aerobic training, there, you know, it's it's sort of somewhere between 70 to 85 percent of, of that number. Um, and you know, if people are looking to embark upon a an exercise program, I, I think there's some wonderful exercise physiologists out there in the community that can actually help people with a with a formal program. And there are plenty of things you know on online as well. If you are looking doing want to take a more scientific approach to it. And I think the whole the whole era of wearable technology is fascinating in terms of exercise because we're all collecting all this amazing data that we can collect on our smartwatches and our fitness bands. It gets up either uploaded to the cloud or to our computers and we, we can track it. And it's going to be able to provide a lot of future information about people's people's cardiovascular health. One of the things that has come out of that work, Sam, is I mentioned it earlier about heart rate variability. It's actually quite a good thing if you're your heart rate does vary and is not just static at the, at the same rate. That's beneficial in terms of, of cardiovascular outcomes. People who are fairly sedentary, whose heart rate doesn't move very much, that, that can be associated with increased cardiovascular risk. So what's, uh, yeah, I, I thought of this earlier when you were talking about atrial fibrillation and irregular heartbeats. How is that different to heart rate variability? So atrial fibrillation, that's a great question. Atrial fibrillation is where there is a, an, a, an electrical disconnect between the top two chambers of the heart. And for most athletic people who develop atrial fibrillation, and I just had a patient earlier in the week, he's a 50-year-old cyclist, he cycles around 300 kilometers, 300 kilometers a week. His, the challenge in atrial fibrillation is where you get unregulated heart rates from the top chamber of the heart. And so that, that can lead to excessively high heart rates with exercise. So when he starts to exercise and he really pushes himself, he gets his heart rate over 200 beats per minute. And what's really interesting is to explain why that may be a problem is that our coronary artery, which is the, the blood supply to our heart, fills and it's part of the cardiac cycle called diastole. And diastole is the relaxing of the heart. So as the, if you've got less time, if, if the heart rate is higher, you have much less time to fill the coronary arteries and people start to get symptoms, either either shortness of breath or chest pain, and your heart often starts to go more than you know, 200, 220 beats per minute. Wow. So having so if you start exercising and your heart rate accelerates too quickly to those levels, then you know you've got a problem. Yes. Okay. And, and likewise, I've read that the faster your heart decelerates back to baseline resting heart rate, the fitter you are. That absolutely, and that is a very important prognostic factor as well. And, and it's one of the things I look for very carefully when people are doing 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 this the stress test. I'm I stress to patients. I'm not just looking at the the tracings of your ECG, what the pictures are looking at, but I'm I'm actually looking at the hemodynamics. What happens to your heart rate? What happens to your blood pressure? And work out of the Cleveland Clinic showed that. If your heart rate does not drop by over 15 beats per minute in the first minute after intense exercise, it's an adverse prognostic cardiovascular feature. So very fit people, my, the Olympic athletes that I look after, they will go from, you know, a sprint and their heart rate will recover within 30 seconds to almost back, back to normal. And that is a marker of extreme fitness for the people that are very unfit. Their heart does not recover very well, and often their heart rate remains elevated for significant amounts of time. So, if you do see that your heart rate remains significantly elevated after a reasonable period of rest with with exercise, it is worth getting getting it checked out. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. That was one of the things that I noticed when I was exercising too much. Okay, my heart rate would drop back to uh, a decent level pretty quickly, but my resting heart rate would be elevated for the rest of that night, even when I was asleep and I'd wake up feeling like I was still running a marathon. So it's obviously the mode I wasn't shutting down. But I think that's a, that's a different story altogether. That's just adrenal fatigue, isn't it? Yes, yes. Yeah. So when it comes to the resting heart rate, then, is that a good indicator of heart fitness and heart health? It is. It is. And we over the long term, we do know that people with lower resting low resting heart rates may 
to better in, in long-term studies of, of people's hearts. But it's a natural effect of getting more aerobically getting more aerobically fit that the heart rate drops because your your heart as you start to get fit i mentioned that it starts to remodel and it means it starts to pump out more blood for every every heartbeat so our body our body naturally adapts by reducing the amount of heartbeats that it needs to provide the same amount of, of blood to our body now some people adapt a little bit better better than others i have some people that say well exercise a lot but my heart rate still still high i mean that that may be part related to underlying genetic factors as well but it's fairly common for highly trained athletic individuals to have a heart rate in the 40s and that's fine as well i've even got elite olympic sprinters that have a heart rate in the, in the high 30s and it's if you are feeling fine and you don't feel dizzy or lightheaded and you can increase your heart rate appropriately with exercise having a heart rate in the 40s is not necessarily a bad thing only in some people does that may represent some a different form of heart disease where we get problems with the heart's electrical system but you're right the usual adaptations as we get fitter is to have a lower heart rate that's because of the influence of the vagal tone um, of the, the and the vagal or the parasympathetic nervous system that tends to slow slow heart rate yeah and the the japanese uh i don't know if this is a myth but the japanese have this philosophy that you are born with so many beats heartbeats for your lifetime and once you get to that <laughs> expiry of those beats when you're, you're due to expire on this earth you know i guess there's no scientific basis for that but the lower your heart resting heart rate you know the better it is for your heart health that's right yeah and from my experience, uh, you know, lowering your weight. Uh, so I, I went from a resting heart rate of 60 down to about 38 when I was really running really well. And I could tell my parasympathetic nervous system was switching on more regularly. And I could tell that the things that reduced that heart rate was not only just physical activity, but actually a drop in body fat percentage. So when you do drop your body fat percentage, why is it that the heart What's going on there? Why does the heart the resting heart rate drop? My feeling is is that you know when you do have more body fat, you know the some of the, the fat cells may need need a blood supply, and the heart's having to work. But basically, the heart's having to work harder as well. Um, and often, it's not fat is not just deposited around. Fat's often not just deposited around the body, around the abdomen, or the usual areas but we also see in overweight people this thing called visceral fat so visceral fat is where we see fat around people's organs so organs like the liver or even even the heart or even our our, our gut and but actually people who are overweight and very unhealthy can get fatty deposits in the liver and it's what we see what's it's one of the most common diseases we see with with something called the metabolic syndrome and People are very high sugar and high carbohydrate diets. They get something called non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, and the, the uh, late term for that is, is fatty liver. But it's the, it's the increased sort of work that the heart has to that that the, the heart's doing to supply blood supply and to, and and I guess nutrients to parts of the body that that have more more fat. But I suspect that is is contributed um, contributed and as well. These people that have a high amount of visceral fat or more central central fat, their hearts tend to be stiffer. And so obesity is one of the most common common causes of increased cardiovascular, you know, death and and morbidity over over the long term. So how how do you know whether you have uh, high visceral fat? It's difficult. It's difficult to tell without doing. I can we can tell when we do scans of people's hearts um if people get scans for other so people do scans for 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 other reasons but often it can be it can be very difficult to tell generally if someone is is significantly overweight or have a bmi about body mass index above 30 they will likely have a degree a degree of visceral fat as well right so what what do you know about that versus say something they call uh, brown fat i don't know whether you've heard about this people with high levels of brown fat is more protective or is that another topic altogether i think that's another topic altogether i'm not all that well versed in that particular area but i think 
the the role that that fat has in our bodies in brown fat versus versus white fat and the uh, the effects of of I guess uh, being overweight. So Jason, before you go, I know you have a very busy practice. I just want to ask you one last thing, which may not relate to exercise, but it's it kind of does, and that is meditation because that's exercise for the mind. Uh, what role in with your research? What role does um, meditation play? When it comes to heart health, I, Sam, that's a great question. Meditation actually has, a, I believe, a large role to play in heart health. So much so that in late 2017, the American Heart Association published a guideline statement and a scientific statement talking about meditation and cardiovascular disease risk reduction. The challenge with doing studies on meditation, it's very difficult to control for other variables. And so there have not been any very large-scale studies to look at the effects on meditation on the cardiovascular system. We do know one of the most important things that I like to tell people about long-term meditation, and there are various different different forms of meditation that some of your listeners would, would know about. But whatever form that you do take, meditation can cause both functional and structural changes in the brain. This is detected by a technology called functional MRI, where we we look at parts of the brain that are associated with the the stress response. And we've we've touched on before that the stress response is very important in terms of activating the cardiovascular system. It raises a hormone called cortisol, it raises adrenaline and noradrenaline, it raises heart rate in some people, Acute stress can lead to lead to a condition called acute stress cardiomyopathy, where where people suddenly develop severe uh, left ventricular failure of the heart muscle to contract. So we do know that long term meditation produces functional and structural changes in the brain. Now they've done some studies looking at meditation and reduction in risk, and there was a study recently that looked at um, that looked at cardiovascular risk reduction. Um, in transcendental meditation um, twice daily in a, in a group of people. This was a small cohort, only about 200 people, but they actually showed a significant reduction in a subsequent myocardial event when people meditated over five years. One of the things that I also I think it's important to know when we are choosing lifestyle factors to treat heart disease and just, just like anything in, in life uh, that, that, that is worthwhile doing, these, these changes take a while. You're not going to get you're not going to get an instant effect or, or a sudden. You know, you start meditating one day and suddenly you're going to reduce your cardiovascular risk or start choosing better behaviors or better better mental health. These these changes start to take take time in our brain, and that's why we need to follow them for for quite a few years. Yeah, totally. I uh, I totally get that. Uh, I think there is an obsession these days with the quick fix. Which is why there is a medical profession, yeah, which is why there are pharmaceutical companies that have drugs out there to do that. But I really love uh, your approach or your marriage between medicine and preventative therapies uh, to treat not just the, the short term, but the long term. You know, one of the, the, the straightforward cardiovascular conditions, Sam, that does respond well to meditation is actually blood pressure. And this was work done with one of the founders of mind-body medicine from Harvard, Dr. Dr. Herbert Benson, who I was fortunate enough to speak to many years ago when I was a medical student. And he started publishing about the effects on meditation on blood pressure. And he was able to show that people who meditated on a regular basis had, had much lower blood pressures. And when you, we mentioned in the first talk that a quarter of all men over the age of 50 in Australia are on blood pressure medication. It's quite, it's quite staggering. If you can Use an adjunct, you know, an adjunct to uh, to the lifestyle treatments of that, and med- something simple as med- meditation. I think that would be very useful for a lot of people. Absolutely. There is one other question before you go. Is that, uh, and I didn't think of it earlier about blood pressure, and that is, exercise raises blood pressure, but meditation lowers it. So, is it the modulation between the two that's good for the heart, or? So that's so exercise. When we exercise, the normal physiological response when we're actually exercising is that, that, that blood pressure raises, and that's the physiological response because blood, I guess, blood 
gets shunted away from blood goes to the areas of the body that, that, that need it most. But the beneficial effects on exercise subsequent to that by having healthier endothelium, which is the lining of the cells, the lining of the cells of our, of our blood vessels, and by, by the release of certain, what we call them, vasoactive peptides and, and, um, and chemicals, they then subsequently cause a healthier vasculature and the lowering of blood pressure afterwards. So that's why when people will say they'll go for a run and then they'll measure their, their blood pressure about an hour, two hours afterwards, they'll find that their blood pressure is, is much lower and maybe earlier than when they started because it's that delayed, that delayed effect on the, on, the, on, the, on the blood vessels that causes the lowering of blood pressure. So it's, not, it's normal that blood pressure will rise with exercise. And then when you start to multiply that effect on the blood vessels by five days, you know, five days a week, happening you know, 20 times a month, then, on a, then over years you start to see that the cumulative effect on, the, on people's blood vessels become apparent. And often people find when they stop doing aerobic exercise that their blood pressure starts, starts to rise. So it's the delayed effect on the blood vessels that makes the difference. Yeah, yeah, totally get that. Now, you mentioned earlier, obviously, these uh, lifestyle preventative um, modalities take time and you've got to take the long-term view. But in your experience, how soon can people start seeing some results? I know with Dr. Dean Ornish's work that you mentioned uh, previously, did he, did he actually uh, track the time it took for the benefits to flow through? He did. So his sort of landmark study, which was published in the 1990s, the lifestyle, it was called the Lifestyle Heart Study, that he showed the changes actually took over about, about three to four years, I believe, to show a reduction in plaque volume. You can, the first thing that starts to happen is change in the biochemistry. So one thing that we've shown is that people who adopt a plant-based diet in as little as eight weeks can show a significant reduction in markers of inflammation in their body. That is something that's easily measured by a blood test called high sensitivity CRP. So we've shown that a plant-based, a plant-based uh, diet can reduce that in as little as eight, eight weeks. We then start to see further biochemical changes, usually up to around three to four months, where people who start to adopt lifestyle change can show a reduction in in, in an elevation in their good cholesterol, their HDL, a reduction in their bad cholesterol, uh, LDL, and then structural changes follow after the bio, biochemical changes. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. And... Um, when you were saying that, I was thinking, okay, what would be like a, a really practical takeaway from the people from listening to not just today's podcast, but the one we recorded a couple of weeks back? And that is, I guess, if you want to infuse any behavioral change in your day that is good for your heart, then whether it's morning or after work, uh, start with exercise, then follow that with meditation, and then sit down and have a plant-based diet. <laughs> I'm obsessed with uh, systems and habits and rituals, and it sounds like from everything you said, that's a really good uh, sequence to undertake uh, diet, exercise, and meditation. And I guess that the last part of it, and you know, and Dean, we mentioned Dean Ornish just before, is in the Ornish program, he has a, and I know you talk a lot about that in some of your previous lectures and podcasts, he has a strong emphasis on connection and relationships as well. I guess that's the final, the, the final part to a, the, the complete lifestyle prevention and treatment of heart disease. Yeah, because that's the common thread uh, for all the blue zones where people are living to over 100, isn't it? It's very difficult to measure, but the impact on your heart is profound from having that sense of connection with your community. It is. And I, I'm starting to see that now, even if it is online, you know, uh, Australia is just leading the way in the way it's connecting, uh, you know, with really funny memes, you know, people dressing up in tuxedos to take their bins out and uh, posting this stuff on uh, social media and connecting with everyone. I, I think that's a beautiful way to connect with people. If we can't do it face-to-face, -face, how good is it that we have this amazing technology that allows us to do it remotely? It is, it is. And I hope, uh, you know, and I hope this will be finished. Hopefully the, some of the social restrictions will wind down in a few weeks' time when it's safe to do so that we'll 
try to do our best to keep on with that, those connections. So what is your life looking like at the moment before we uh, wrap this up? So we're I'm doing a lot of telemedicine and tele, telehealth at the moment for patients that, that, that are still interested in looking after their uh, their their heart and uh, we're doing a lot of preventative consultations. You know, part of my work is also to look after people with acute cardiac problems. So we're still available for that, though. People, as I mentioned earlier in the talk, people uh, are there's much less presentations for acute presentations of of heart disease and and heart failure. But there's still still goes out there. And then part of my job as well is to continue on teaching of our at here at Macquarie University of our medical students and our junior doctors. So that's still ongoing. Oh, that's really awesome. Jason, thank you very much for uh, coming on our podcast. And I look forward to seeing you face to face. I think I'm due for my annual checkup. And uh, I, I love it every time because I walk away with a smile on my face thinking, yes, I'm doing the right thing because it does pay off. Let me tell you guys, 15 years ago, I was, I was 12 kilos heavier. My blood pressure was higher. My cholesterol was higher. And a lot of the preventative stuff that uh, Jason is talking about on our podcast today and the one previously has worked for me. So this isn't just something that I've read in a book and not just something we've talked about. I've actually witnessed that I have a high cholesterol problem that is inherited. And through these preventative measures, as well as um, a pharmaceutical uh, drugs that help, I've been able to outlive, you know, my ancestors who had died of a young age uh, at heart attacks. So, Jason, thank you so much for all the work that you do and for making the time uh, to coming on to our high branch. So, thank you. Thank you very much for having me, Sam.